Do you ever think that the idea that this book, with words written over 2,000 years ago into a very different place and different culture to ours, is one that we seek to not only listen to but live our lives by, seems pretty foolish. <laughs> it certainly seems that way to a lot of people. It's a criticism often made of Christians that we are foolish to believe that words written so long ago are relevant to our lives today. And I don't know about you, but a passage like the one we've just read, to me, seems to highlight that foolishness. It talks about slavery and patriarchy. It was written to people who lived in a world in which it was taken for granted that certain people were worth less than other people simply by virtue of their status or their gender. And we know that passages like the one Holly just read to us have actually been used by people throughout history to justify maintaining those kinds of views and practices. Slave owners in the United States used to read passages like this to their slaves. Men have used these passages to justify abuse of their wives. So it feels a bit risky to stand up here and preach these words this morning. It terrifies me that someone experiencing oppression or abuse might mistakenly think that these words tell them that it's okay or that they should just put up with it. Part of the problem, I think, is that too often people like me have stood at the front and talked about interpreting the Bible and applying it to our lives as if it is a simple task, that we just read what it says and then do exactly that as if this book contains timeless truths dropped from heaven that speak into every situation and time in exactly the same way and require no thought or discernment in applying them. But that's never how Christians have understood the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the word of God absolutely and that it speaks with God's authority into our lives and that through it God seeks to transform us. We want to be a community here at Richmond that lives in the biblical story and lives it out in practice. But we also recognise that these words were originally written to particular people, in particular times, in a particular language, in particular situations, and we need to be careful to understand what they meant to them so as to make sure we are not misunderstanding what God is saying to us through them. And we interpret the Bible in a community, together seeking to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit to reveal and make clear to us what King Jesus is saying. Jesus, the living word through whom God speaks fully and finally to us here and now in the present. And we wrestle with the scriptures and we ask questions of them and we allow them to ask questions of us so that together we might be shaped by God and become more like King Jesus. I've been joking with a couple of people this week that it feels like we're developing a bit of a pattern at Richmond this year where we are looking at the parts of the Bible that usually get skipped over. We've, um, the, you know, those passages that, that at first glance might shock us or even repel us or just make us feel confused or uncomfortable. You know, we looked at stories like Hagar and Tamar and we spent weeks sitting in the Psalms of despair and doubt and rejection and anger and even cursing. <laughs> We've wrestled with what they mean and how they work. We've acknowledged that the Bible is complex, that it is made up of different types of writing, and there are different ways that we need to approach and respond to them. 
And so now as we're working our way through this letter that Peter wrote, writing to Christians in the early church scattered throughout the Roman Empire, seeking to live out the King Jesus story in the places they find themselves in, living differently to those around them, living as exiles, as sojourners, as aliens. And we've already seen there's some striking parallels between the situation they found themselves in and the one we live in. But there are also some huge differences. And we need to be careful to understand what Peter is doing in this letter in order to hear what it has to say to us. Peter, the disciple who lived with Jesus for three years, experienced his life and teaching, witnessed his death and his resurrection. And then Peter, who received the Holy Spirit with power, transforming his whole life and commissioning him to share Jesus with everyone that he met and teach the implications of living that out. And so Peter writes this letter as he continues to encourage the church to let that story shape everything about them, both how they see themselves in the grand scheme of the universe and how they live in every moment of every day. If you were here last week, I thought Mark explained it really well as he spoke about this kind of two different layers or levels of what Peter is trying to do in this letter and what happened in the early church. On one level, Peter's words are really quite specific and grounded in practical realities for followers of Jesus to live out in their lives. And at the same time, Peter is painting this big picture of a new reality, the new kingdom, where everything is different and the whole world is being made new. And he's inviting his listeners to live into and look forward to this new reality, knowing that it is breaking in to transform even the everyday realities of their lives here and now. Peter's readers were facing persecution under the Roman emperors of the time. And Peter encourages them to persevere, to live quietly and obediently, loving and following Jesus even when it's really tough. And yet in doing so, they actually outlasted that empire that was trying to get rid of them by outloving it. They end up being part of remaking the world as we know it. And many of them didn't actually live to see this, but it was their faithful, different lives transformed by the story of Jesus that transformed societies in ways that we take for granted today. They started out as this small, marginalised community on the fringes of the mighty Roman Empire, and they outlasted it because they outloved it. They became a transformative community that changed the world as they lived in and out of the kingdom of King Jesus. And so I think Peter's letter issues a call to us to do the same. And so we also need to wrestle with these two different layers or levels of how that happens. On the one hand, there is an invitation to us that is practical and grounded, specific and concrete in the daily situations and relationships we find ourselves in. How will we be like King Jesus in our relationships, in our interactions, in our attitudes, in our actions, even when we find ourselves faced with opposition or challenge or even oppression. And yet at the same time, we're invited to imagine the renewal of all things that God is bringing about and that our everyday decisions and actions are in some small way contributing to and pointing towards this new reality. So, We get to this part of Peter's letter where he's speaking into the everyday realities that his readers were living with. And I think the challenge we have here is that some of those everyday realities 
make us pretty uncomfortable today. Slavery. Harsh and oppressive masters who beat and oppress the people that they consider their possessions. Patriarchy. Husbands who have the right to expect obedience from their wives who are considered by society to be less human than they are. These are the assumptions of the world into which Peter is speaking. As many as one in three people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And they were considered property, not persons. As a master in the Roman Empire, you would think of your slaves in the way that you and I think of our washing machines or our cars or our televisions. They are the appliances that service your life or get you around or provide you with entertainment. They were not considered people. They had no legal standing. They had no rights. They had no interests of their own. They existed to serve you and to be subservient to you. Obviously, around one in two people in the Roman Empire were women. Funny that. And they too were considered property, whether that of their father or of their husband. And as a man, you might think of the women in your life in the Roman Empire in the way that you and I think of our pets. They provide you with some level of relationship and affection as you so desire. But they are not full persons with the same level of ability or intellect or status or desires or rights as you are. They too exist to serve you and to be subservient to you. I think it's really important to grasp that context, those assumptions of the world, to understand just how radical the calls of the New Testament are into that context when Paul asks masters to act justly towards their slaves, that would have seemed as incomprehensible to them as me asking you to treat your toaster oven with respect. When the early church calls masters and slaves to see one another as brothers and sisters, that would have sounded out as outrageous to them as me saying to you, make your lawnmower a full member of your family. When Paul's letters ask husbands to love their wives as equal partners in the gospel, that would have sounded as ridiculous as me asking you to take your cat to work to sit in on a meeting with your boss. And when Jesus invited women to sit at his feet and learn and commissioned them as the first witnesses to his identity as the Messiah and to his resurrection from the dead, that would have seemed as crazy to them as you trusting your dog to represent you in court. Do we get this? In the world of the first century, when relationships were defined by status and power, the New Testament subverts expectations by calling everyone, both those with high status and those with low status, both those with power and without power, to put one another first and to show love and respect and to see one another as fellow heirs of the kingdom. And it turns things upside down by calling people to do this, not out of obligation due to the status that you hold, but as a demonstration of what it looks like to know King Jesus and to live out your relationship with him. And so on the big picture level, I believe it is inevitable. It is inevitable that the church becomes a place where those systems and structures cannot be sustained. And it's not an accident that Christians have throughout history been at the forefront of the abolitionist movement, 
of the civil rights movement, of the women's suffrage movement. Because if you take seriously the call of Jesus and the claims of the New Testament, you cannot keep seeing people this way. Coming to know King Jesus, becoming part of his family, listening to the call of his kingdom has to lead you to treating other people with respect and equality, to working towards transformation of structures that oppress and limit people, to stepping into a new world where justice and compassion flourish and pointing towards the day when all will be united and all will be made right and there will be, as Paul says, no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile, no male or female. Peter's words in this passage actually point us towards that big picture as he envisions a community living in right relationship with God and he quotes Psalm 34 at the end there of what that looks like and can look like. However, at the same time, Peter recognises that there are people who are living here and now in the reality of those systems and those structures. Slavery was never abolished in the Roman Empire. Women were never considered equal citizens. As the church longed for and lived into and worked towards those things, people had still had to live every day in the places and circumstances in which they found themselves. They were citizens of two worlds, living as exiles here and now, even as they waited for and worked towards what was to come. And so Peter's specific instructions for these people also deal with some of the realities of living like Jesus in the everyday relationships of their context. Slaves are not encouraged to rise up against their masters, even as the breaking of Jesus' kingdom, I think, inexorably leads towards the day when there will no longer be any slaves. But today, Peter says to the slave, live like Jesus, showing love and respect to all, even your master. And if that master abuses and mistreats you, he says, you, like Jesus, have the opportunity to show grace and demonstrate love and humility even as you suffer. This is where Peter's words make me uncomfortable. Even N.T. Wright, I was reading his commentary on this passage this week, and he says, Peter is sailing close to the wind here. This sounds unnervingly like Peter is telling people who are being abused just to put up with it. And I want to make sure that nobody here thinks that that is what I'm suggesting. But I need to read Peter's words carefully, making sure I don't overread his practical advice into this specific situation without reference to the wider context of the entire biblical imagination. And I also need to be careful not to judge Peter by my own cultural standards and perspectives. I think... What Peter is trying to do here is, speaking to, is to speak to people who find themselves in this situation with no other option. A slave has no way of making themselves not a, no longer a slave. They are powerless and helpless. And even in that situation, Peter says, you are still called to follow King Jesus and to trust yourself into God's hands as you do so, believing that the new kingdom way will yet break in and transform even as you yourself may not see it in this life. That's a hard message to understand. It's a hard message to preach. I have been thinking this week about a young girl who's currently living as a slave after being kidnapped by a terrorist group, and I imagine trying to speak these words of Peter to her, and I shudder and I recoil from it. How could I suggest that? 
And yet, in a situation like that where there is no other option, perhaps it is clinging to the example and life of Jesus that is all you have left. That's certainly what reports about a young girl called Leah Sharabu say, a Nigerian girl who's been held by Boko Haram for over 18 months as a slave because she has refused to give up her faith in Jesus and convert to Islam. Perhaps the challenge in these words comes to me because I am not powerless. And so I do not throw myself in dependence upon the crucified Jesus in the same way that she does. I am one of those who is called to work towards the big picture of making sure horrific acts of injustice don't keep happening in the future. But if and when I do face helpless suffering, Peter's words suggest that there is deep comfort in knowing that I'm not alone, that Jesus has already walked that road before me and walks it with me. Women or wives, it's the same word in the New Testament. Peter says, be like Jesus in the way that you relate to your husbands, particularly if they don't know him. Put them first, submit to them, show them the inner transformation that Jesus brings. Again, at first glance, some of these words make me uncomfortable, particularly when Peter uses the example of Sarah calling Abraham her lord or master as if she were his slave. But I think we have to draw the same parallels as with slavery because elsewhere in the New Testament, both husbands and wives are called to submit to one another, to love one another, to put one another first. Men and women are called to treat one another as brothers and sisters, working towards justice and equality and participating together in the new kingdom life. But for women in the early church who find themselves with husbands who do not know Jesus and do not get this, Peter wants to give them a practical way forward. While you wait and trust that the kingdom of God is breaking in, how can you be like Jesus today in the midst of your less than ideal situation? Peter says, do not give way to fear. But also... Do not give in to the pressures of your society to live as a token decorative figure, which is how Roman wives were often depicted, thinking that their value comes from looking good. Instead, Peter says, live like Jesus from the very depths of your being. It's actually a call to strength and dignity that pushes back against the narrow roles that women back then were expected to keep. And I think which finds some echoes in some of the pressures women face today to define ourselves by how we look or how desirable we are thought to be. And here, Peter does follow Paul in giving an instruction to husbands as well, an unexpected and radical decision in this cultural context to speak to the powerful as well as the powerless. Men had no obligations to their wives in ancient Rome, just power to exercise. And yet Peter's call is to an understanding of that power and a use of it in a way that is for the benefit of the other, recognising the potential for abuse and choosing to lay it down. By seeing their wives as co-heirs in Christ, husbands in the Roman Empire are given a whole new way of understanding the world. And I find it really interesting that the motivation Peter gives here is not as you might expect or even hope that they do this because it will be good for their wives and they will flourish, although undoubtedly that will be the result. But the reason he gives is actually about their own relationship with Jesus. 
if you are a follower of Jesus, this is how you will live. Because that's Peter's central concern in every situation. What does it look like to live like Jesus? Whether you're a slave or a master, a husband or a wife, a Jew or a Gentile, rich or poor, young or old. Right here, right now, today. Peter is actually subverting the assumption that women's place is to be beautiful and men's place is to be dominant. He is actually challenging both genders to rethink how they interact in those settings, to see one another through different eyes and to live differently. Wright suggests, I think I agree with him, I'm not 100% sure, but Wright suggests that left to ourselves, we tend to gravitate to what women and men have always done, to the stereotypes and the roles that can bring out the worst in each of our genders. And Peter is calling these people to a much harder practice of actually asking what difference does following Jesus make in every single situation? What difference does following Jesus make to responding to the call to how I look or to responding to the call of what I do with my strength and power? And the goal is actually not happy marriages, although I'm sure that Peter is for that. But the goal here in all things is modelling Jesus for the sake of his bigger picture in the purposes in the world. This is actually revolutionary. And then Peter says, finally, he brings it all together like a good preacher with a conclusion. This is his finally, not mine. Sorry to disappoint. Every one of you should be like-minded, he says, compassionate, loving, humble, and gracious. And every one of you, by definition, includes both slaves and masters wives and husbands, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, upper or lower class, high or low status. These commands aren't just for some towards one another, but this is the overarching framework I've been talking about that suggests in the end we all need to treat one another as equals in the kingdom of God. The specific invitations given to specific people in specific circumstances cannot be the end point. Slaves can't be the only ones who have to obey and wives can't be the only ones who have to submit because that would render the rest of the New Testament commands like these ones moot. They would only apply to some. Whenever specific examples like this are given in the New Testament, they are always framed as part of a larger call to everyone to live out the love of Jesus in every relationship. These are practical ways of living out the particular challenges that some people find themselves in, but every single follower of Jesus is called to the same love and the same grace and the same humility and the same compassion for everyone else. That is the radical call of the New Testament and the transformative invitation of King Jesus. So, what does that all have to say to us 2,000 years later? Where do we find ourselves in either the big picture or the everyday practical realities of this stuff? Well, thankfully, we live in a country where slavery has been outlawed and it is not part of our daily experience. And so we might think that in terms of the big picture, we are much closer to the kingdom imagination of equality of status for everyone than the people of the Roman Empire. And yet... Currently, there are over 40 million slaves in the world today with as many as 15,000 here in Australia. Too many people still live effectively as the possessions of others, subservient 
relegated to menial tasks that benefit someone else and not themselves. We need to keep working towards the day when this will not be the case. It was only last year that the Australian Federal Government passed the Modern Slavery Act, at least in part due to Christians advocating and pointing out the need for it. How are we still allowing the Bible's call to kingdom living to motivate and inspire us to keep working towards freedom for all? Because while we've come a long way, we can also keep modelling and calling for transformation in how people are treated in our society. Some of you might know I've been in Canberra this past week with Baptist leaders from across the country meeting with politicians to advocate on behalf of children living in poverty. There are three quarters of a million children living below the poverty line in Australia today and that is just not good enough. They are not being given, well they may not be enslaved, they're not being given the same start in life as everyone else and they need someone to speak up for them. And let me tell you, some of the ways that I heard one of our senators in particular talking about their parents who were doing it tough reminded me that not everyone is seen as equal in our political structures. On the practical, grounded, concrete level, well, again, I'm hoping you don't have slaves in your possession. But we are still called to live differently as exiles in a world that does not yet treat all people as equals. Where in your daily interactions are there people who are seen as less than? People of lower status, people who exist to serve or meet your needs rather than being allowed to fully flourish in and of themselves. Who do we treat as less than human by the way that we speak to them or the way that we speak about them or the ways that we fail to fully interact with and embrace them? What does it look like to choose not to buy into the power structures of our world, but to give full value and dignity to every single person, no matter their position in the pecking order? Who is there that you could lift up this week by living differently towards them? And what if you do find yourself the person who is overlooked or looked down upon? marginalised or minimised, devalued or disregarded? What does it look like to be like Jesus in that situation? Not insisting upon your rights, but choosing to show patience, humility, submission, even to the point of sacrifice. There is a call to understand yourself as an exile, as a sojourner in that situation. Yes, longing for the coming kingdom when all be set right, but choosing to follow Jesus even in the darkness of the present. And what about the patriarchy? Well, again, things have changed greatly since the time of the Roman Empire, and I am grateful to live in a time where as a woman I can vote and work and represent others and have equal value and status in the eyes of the law. Again, in the big picture, we have many Christians to thank for where we find ourselves today. I actually just learned a great story this week, I can tell you more later, about Silas Mead, who was the pastor of Flinders Street Baptist and the guy who planted this church here at Richmond 125 years ago, which was around about the same time the women's suffrage movement in South Australia gained success. And he was one of the leaders of support for that. He actually signed the petition three times because he wanted to make clear that he was for it. And yet... 
the rates of physical and sexual violence against women around the world and even here in Australia are still shockingly high. Too many girls are still denied access to education simply because of their gender. In a world of me too and yes all women, we still find women who are purely viewed for the value that they have for certain men. Women who are treated as if they exist for the benefit of someone else and not themselves. And too many ways in which they have failed to be treated as co-heirs of the gracious gift of life. How are we allowing the big picture of the Bible's call to kingdom living to motivate and inspire us to keep working towards value and dignity for all? And on the practical, grounded, concrete level, what does it look like in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships? How are you living differently as sojourners in this current world? How are we as a church going at treating one another as sisters and brothers? Where in our daily interactions are there people who get interrupted or spoken over or people we depersonalise or objectify or people we relate to only on the basis of what we think they have to offer us? What does it look like to choose not to buy into the standards of the beauty industry and not to buy into the standards of the porn industry? both of which value women predominantly for how they look, just like the Roman Empire did. But instead, to choose to respond to the deeper dignity and strength that come from within as people created in the image of God. Who can you encourage and honour and value this week? And again, what if you find yourself the person discounted or diminished, objectified or ostracised? What does it look like to be like King Jesus in that situation, to trust his work within you and choose to respect even those who disrespect you? How do you find the strength to continue to do what is right and not give in to fear? And finally, this is my finally as well as Peter's, (laughs) what about the overarching call to love, compassion and humility to everyone? even those who do us wrong. Are there other relationships Peter would speak into in our daily lives? How do we treat our parents, our children, our neighbours, our workmates, our friends? How do we speak about our politicians or our cleaners, our bankers or our checkout operators? How do we view those that other people look down upon like our city's homeless or those struggling with addiction? And how do we respond to people who look down upon us, who disagree with us or revile our faith? What does it look like to be Jesus-like? Citizens of two worlds, longing and working towards what is to come. What does it look like to be like King Jesus in every relationship of our day and our week and our year, of our home and our neighbourhood, our community, our society, our nation, and our world? It's a lot of questions I've just asked you, which is good because I don't have all the answers. What Peter is doing is applying the theology, if you like, of knowing Jesus to the practical realities of daily life. And he's encouraging us to do the same, not simplistically, but wrestling with some of these questions. And so we're going to finish our time together this morning by taking some time to do that. I'm going to ask you in a minute to grab a couple of people around you, maybe three or four, and I want you to talk to each other 
and ask these kinds of questions. Where does this land practically in your life this week, this year? How do we live this out? Big picture, but also grounded, concrete, everyday situations. And you may find that you end up with more questions than answers, and that's okay. That's what Peter is encouraging us to do. I just want to encourage you, if you do have questions, to write them down, because as you may know, at the end of this series, we are having a Q&A Sunday, where all we're going to do is throw around some questions and try to answer them, and probably end up with more questions that we're going to keep answering as we move forward from here. So let me pray, and then I'm going to get you to have a chat with people around you. King Jesus, you change everything. And knowing you changes everything for us. And we thank you for people like Peter, who spoke into the real world in which he lived and managed to do so in a way that, that helps people practically, that gives them advice and wisdom in how to live in the difficult situations they find themselves in. And yet in a way that paints this picture, this imagination of a different world that they can long for and live towards and work towards being a part of. And we stand here 2,000 years later and we see how far we are come and we say thank you, Jesus, for the followers of yours who have worked towards the world that we have now and all the good things we experience because of that. And yet, we are not there yet. We name and recognise the challenges and we long to see you continue to set things right. Our hearts break for the people who are treated as less than people in our world and maybe even in our lives. And so we pray now as we spend time reflecting and listening and thinking out loud with one another about what this means for us today, here and now. Would you challenge us, encourage us, raise the questions for us and give us the strength to wrestle and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.